Amy, it says you are trained in technology. That's very good. Are you adept at Excel? No. PowerPoint? No. Publisher? Not really. Exactly in what area of technology mm -hmm. are you proficient? <laughs> Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram, Vine, Twitter. You know the big ones. I'm surprised you didn't say Facebook. people like my parents <laughs> that's funny well Amy when you're working for me you have to have those kind of research skills because I'll send you things for you to comb through and get the answers and send them to me so for that you've got to be really good at technology for stuff like that no problem I'll just ask Siri you will just ask Siri you know Siri tell me this Siri find me that we're all good at getting you the answers tell Siri I want you ready to go at 8, sharp, each and every morning. I don't understand. What don't you understand? What you just said. You don't understand be ready to go? No. You said 8, right? Yes. 8 like in the morning 8? Yes, in the morning. Yeah. That kind of doesn't work for me. Who gets up at 8? I do. I Skype with my French boyfriend in Paris until like 3 in the morning. I don't even get to Starbucks until like 10 where I order my grande chai tea latte, 3 pumps, skim milk, light water, 2% foam, extra hot but not too hot. So if it's okay, I work best in the morning at 10.45. <laughs> wow. Amy, I don't think we're going to be a good fit. Why are you so negative? I can sense your hostilities and right now I am not feeling very safe. I've been here for over five minutes and the only nice thing you have said to me was nice resume, which I typed all night for this meeting with you. You've given me no guidance, no validation, no encouragement, no supervision. Is there an HR director somewhere? HR director? Yes, I need to speak to someone. I may have to take off today as a mental health day. Take the day off you. Amy, Amy, look at me. You don't work here. Are you firing me? Okay, yes. <sighs> Maturity. What's it look like? What's the scriptures have to say about it? Let's, uh, Go to a word of prayer before we get into God's word. Father, we thank you that your word is so pertinent. Father, as we look at what you have to say in Ephesians, as we've been going through, we pray that you would give me the words, that it would be pertinent to us here in Dhaka as we look at our situation and the changing world around us. May you make us mature spiritually and understand that today. In Jesus' name, amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul is in prison. He's talking to his congregation 
out there somewhere by writing to them. And he says, you have a calling wherever you are. And because of that, you need to live worthy of that calling. So what's that look like? He says, he, I'm <coughs> skipping to 12 and 13, so you can see what he actually says it is. Um, that the body of Christ may be built until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, it's not only when we're becoming infants and then toddlers and then we keep going up to adulthood, but also spiritually, there are steps. You're a seeker, you're a believer, and you're a follower, and then you're a disciple, and then you're a discipler, right? And, and so there are those steps in the spiritual realm also. And we'll look at some of those today. He's, he goes into verse 2, and he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So he gives us basically four things of how to be mature. Here's how you be mature. And the first one is you're humble. Completely humble. He doesn't just use humble, sorry. Completely humble, which is a little different, I guess. Right? Matthew tells us uh, how Christ was humble. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke unto you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ was humble. You know, it's interesting that in the Greek um, world, humility was looked down upon. This is not something that you wanted. You wanted to show that you were above others. And, and when it came to the Greek world, that just wasn't something that would be valued. And so when Christ is saying this, or Paul is saying this, he's, he's saying, look, it's going to be take a whole new look at life because you have to be humble. In Philippians, we read, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others. Humility is valuing others, not valuing ourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. That's humility. The second one is gentleness. Galatians 6 says this way, Brothers and sisters, if somebody is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, 
or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's interesting there that carrying each other burden comes from a shipping word. It's about ships. It's not about taking the load off of everybody and then you carry it all and let them do whatever they want. They don't do anything. It's the, the picture here is of a ship that has too much in it. It's got a hole or whatever. It's, it's broken down. It's a broken down ship and it can't take its load. And so what would happen was another ship would come alongside and tie up to that ship carrying the burden. It's not taking away the burden, it's carrying the burden together so that that ship could make it to a place where it could get fixed and, and work. And that's the term that Paul is using here. Carry each other's burdens gently. It's a quality that you're not being overly impressed by the sense of one's self-importance. You're working together with that person who is having trouble, having an issue. It's meekness, it's mildness. It's not being stepped on. It is a word of strength that you're gentle with somebody else. You're carrying their burden together. Titus puts it this way, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. It's easy to get upset, but to be gentle with those people. The next uh, quality of somebody who's mature is patient. I don't know about you, but patience, we understand it, but we really don't want to, do we? <laughs> patience is steadfast, long-suffering, slow to anger, it's to preserve under difficult situations. It's to keep going when you really just want to give up. It's to deal with people that are hard to deal with. The fourth quality of someone that's mature is love. And this is agape love. It's selfless sacrificial, unconditional love, like Christ had. And uh, if you want to look at the whole definition, 1 Corinthians 13, which is interesting, is right in between the gifts uh, passages, where there might be some conflict in the church. Um, so those are the four that we have. Completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. That is what he defines as maturity. 
Paul goes on. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Using those four, gentleness, patience, um, humility, love, it builds a camaraderie. It builds the body. And so he comes here and he says to make every effort, and that is to eager and zealously do it. It's not just, yeah, yeah, we'll do it, whatever. It is to, he's emphasizing that, that you need to be mature and you need to have that bond. And it's interesting here that the bond, it's, he says, it's the unity of the Spirit. He does not say the Spirit of unity. Notice the difference there. The unity of the Spirit means that we will be united because of the Holy Spirit. Because of what God wants and how God wants to work. It is not that we're that this is the most important thing that we be united and we'll do anything to do that. It is that we're united because of the Holy Spirit. And He is the one that guides our unity. Peace forms a bond. But, really, peace is not an end in itself. Then he goes on with seven different things that were united. It's interesting that he does them in two groups of three and then a one. And, and let me kind of go over that a little bit. But he starts out with, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. We have one body, one spirit, one hope. It builds us in that unity. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one master, one Lord. There's only one faith that we come together with. And he says one baptism. And, and at, at this point, you're probably going, why one baptism? Because he's looking at it and saying, this is how we come to Christ. We, we show the world that we are followers of Christ when we come to that obedience and say, yes, I want the world to know that I am a follower of Christ and I come to that baptism. He's saying, you're not just going to come just because you're kind of here. But you come and everybody comes because they have faith in Christ. And there's only that one door to come to it. And so um, when, when they were looking um, if you notice in Acts 2, when they're saying how many people are coming to Christ, they say it this way. Those who accepted the, his message, after Peter uh, preached at Pentecost, 
were baptized. And about 3,000 were added in their number that day. And so what they were looking at, they're saying, these are the people who have committed to this body. Now then we go on to the third oneness, and it's one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's giving a monotheistic belief. There is one God. It's interesting that in leading up to this, he has three, three, and then the one. I, I don't know if you're interested in these kind of things, but it's, it's kind of, there is a trinity. It's one God, three persons. And he's playing with his words to do that also in there. One God. It's the Trinity. That's who we believe in. That's our focus. Especially as mature believers in Christ. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. There's unity, but not uniformity. And so... The grace there is given to you so you can serve. He's giving you grace so you can serve the body. He's giving different people different gifts to do that. Go on to verse 8. And this is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captive and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul here is doing an interpretation of Psalms 68:18. And if you look it up, you'll say, "Hello, what's going on?" If you want to get into that theological debate, there's all kinds of ways of looking at it. But let me just put it to what Paul is saying here, okay? He's he's trying to tell us that God gives us our gifts. He's not saying God gives us talents. Uh, well, God does give us talents and abilities, but he is trying to tell us in the church there are talents and abilities, but there's even something deeper than that. And that's the gifts that God has given you and given you the grace to be able to serve the church with those gifts. And that's what he's saying. It's coming from God. It's not coming from other places. Now, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. I, I know that a lot of times we make these church offices. You are a teacher and you're a pastor and you're a prophet. And we, we make them offices. And what's happened is these are the gifts that God has given in the church. And there's, there's a bigger list in Acts and Romans 
but these basic gifts have been given to the church. And so when people are gifted in these areas, then we make it an office in the church. But Paul is not saying this is how you have to run the church with these certain offices. He's saying these are functions that I have given. All right? So what's an apostle? An apostle is an emissary or messenger authorized to preach. Um, he he fo- founded things, uh, buildings of the church. In Acts, um, when they were looking to replace Judas, uh, they said, what we're looking for an apostle is beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they were looking for somebody who had seen Jesus' life and resurrection to become an apostle. And so some people say, okay, it's only those 12, 13 with the new one, that could be apostles. Others come to the church and say, look, apostles are given to us as as a church function to start new things. So that church planter, that person who goes out and and starts a new ministry. Functionally, they're apostles. He says, there's prophets. What does a prophet do? Well, the prophet just relays God's message. Don't shoot the messenger. That comes from this. It's not what he thinks. It's what God thinks, and he's going to tell you. Sometimes you like it. Sometimes you really don't. Okay? That's the prophet. Uh, There's the evangelist who proclaims the good news. It's the one who just goes to people that have no clue and tells them the good news so that they can accept it and understand it. The pastor. That's the shepherd. It's the person to guard uh, and lead the flock that, that he's charged with. The overseer. Sometimes it's interchangeable with elder. In, in, the, in the word of God. The teacher, the teacher is the one who passes on Christian traditions. They interpret, they look at it, the, the word of God, they interpret it for you, and, and then they apply it to what's going on and developing in the church at that time. That's what the teacher does. And hopefully at the end I will try to interpret what's going on. So why do we have these? Why do we have these? He goes on and says, to equip his people for works of service. All those positions are for to help the church be equipped in the community that they are there to serve. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ. You see, we want the church to be unity, but also it's unity in that faith, but also that they're knowledgeable about the Son of God that they come to that maturity 
which is the fullness of Christ. When you're full of Christ, then you've become mature. Not when you get old enough. And that is why we have the positions there to help us get there. So what is knowing the Son of God? Philippians 3.10 puts it this way. I want you to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. To know that power. And, to, and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. It's a hard one, isn't it? He wants you to know Christ so you'll know how to suffer. That's not one we like to talk about, is it? But that's what Paul said. Matthew puts it this way when he gave the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's what a teacher does helps you obey and learn the what's going on and, and then to be able to obey it. That's how you know the Son of God. Then we will no longer be infants. I don't know. Had an infant? They can't do a thing, right? You have to feed them, change their diaper. But the interesting thing about infants is they have their baby will. Right from the beginning. If you've had a child, they are sinners day one. Right? They're infants. They want what they want. They're very selfish. And Paul is saying, then we're no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind and teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. It's interesting that they're saying that infants, the, the toddlers, that if you're not mature, what's going to happen? You hear this, oh, no. You hear that, oh, no, oh, no. And, and, and you just, everything is, is truth. Because you're not grounded in who Christ is. And when you're grounded in the fullness of Christ, then you can say, okay, I can understand this. I can gently, you know, like with gentleness, help people along. And, and these big things that are tossing everybody in the community, you're able to be able to be the sturdy a person of maturity there. It says cunning, which is interesting. Cunning is more like trickery or sleight of hand. It's for dice playing. And it's like people will play you if you're not mature. Craftiness is, is more for, for self-gain. Like it I, I want to get what I want to get. And I'm going to do something to trick you so that I can gain what I want. Um, 
in Ephesians 6.11, then he, he attributes that to the devil, actually. Verse 15 says, Instead, speak the truth in love. We will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. It's that crossroad. You can tell the truth. It, it can be brutal, can't it? But it's also love. And to be able to do both the truth and love is the maturity. Truth is easy. Love is a little harder. Mix the two, even harder. And so it's that, that place where both come together. You need to tell the truth and be right, but also be kind and loving. Speak truth. Live truth. It's a harder thing. Why? For the unity of the Spirit is why you're doing this. Let me try to put it into today's world. We're going through a hard time. Let's just face it. We don't know about this virus, what's happening. The world is not changing by the week, it's changing by the day. New rules, new regulations, how we should act, what we should do. If I'm reading everything right, 70% of us will get this virus. It's not a if, it's a when. And so we're trying to make it so the when is a little longer so we have equipment to deal with it. We're trying to make the when a little longer so that we have ways of dealing with it better. Maybe even a cure. But this is nothing new. But let me tell you this. When it comes to the Christian faith, this is nothing actually new. I, I've was interested in finding out that Spurgeon um, had a cholera outbreak in 1854 in his congregation. And if he went to visit, he might be dead in three days. Cholera is a three-day thing. You're healthy, three days later, you're dead. And he would go visit, pray with them, even called up three three in the morning to a man who had who had blasted him, and he went to pray for him. He didn't get there quite in time, and the man passed away just as he got there. But in maturity, he was there to help people come to know the Lord. We read about Calvin. And Calvin's ministry in Geneva, um, 
they had the plague in, on five different occasions where people were dying of the plague. And um, during that first outbreak of 1542, Calvin personally went and led visit- visitations into where the plague was infesting and death was going on. I guess what I'm trying to say here is as mature believers our first response doesn't need to be fear. Our first response doesn't need to be oh no, what about me? That's an immature response when we're thinking about me. The mature response is thinking about others in love. Let, let me tell you a statistic that I have learned. And I'm not sure. I mean, you can correct me on this. I guess there was Elijah and Moses. But basically, 100% of us are going to die. Okay? We're going to die. The issue is not whether you're going to die. The issue is, are you ready for it? And are the people that you are in contact with ready for it. So are you making a difference so that they are ready for that? Because 100% are going to die. And so as believers, as the church here in Dhaka, how are you affecting that? I understand. There's this quarantines. There's those kind of things. So, may I suggest some ways? Helping people if they need food. Helping people in praying and comforting. We have technology that we can go back and forth without even being near somebody. How are you contacting those people? May I suggest prayer? Every revival has started with prayer. Every revival. So how do we start a revival in Dhaka? Well, many of you aren't allowed to leave your homes. You have three to four hours to pray for a revival in Dhaka. I know my wife got on me. She says, you haven't been praying more. I said, well, I'm still working. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to say, I'm going to take the discipline at this point to spend that time to know Christ, know what He wants, understand Him, be speaking to Him, and growing in maturity. I don't know what decision we're going to have to make as a church. Whether we can meet together even after today. But may I encourage you to be mature. Humble. Gentle. Patient. Loving. All those are thinking of others. All those are not thinking of my life, but others' lives.
and that they will come to know Christ. May I encourage you in that way. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who has brought us here to Dhaka. Some of us have no clue why. Why we're not with family. Why we're not somewhere else, especially at this time. But Father, you have done that. May we be mature. May we know you and know your heart. And Father, may you bring revival here in Dhaka. That your spirit may come. That many may come to know you as Lord and Savior of their lives, even during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.